to now to the reading of God's holy word. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together on this day to study your word, to sing your praise. And as we come to this psalm this morning, this final psalm of the Psalter, Father, we pray that the words written here would resonate within our hearts and would lead us to give you all glory and honor and praise that you alone deserve. And so we pray that your spirit would be leading us and guiding us as your word goes forth, that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about great and abundant fruit to your glory. We pray all these things, and we pray for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, again, this morning we come to Psalm 150, which really is a a fitting conclusion, not only to the final collection of psalms that we've considered over the past several weeks, but it is a fitting doxology to the entire Psalter. Remember that doxology is simply a song of praise, acknowledging the glory due to the one being praised. And of course, the only one who is worthy to receive such exalted praise is the Lord our God. Psalm 146 to Psalm 149. You remember each of those psalms focused this praise... On a different reason. That the Lord our God is our hope. The Lord our God is our caretaker. He's our creator. And the Lord our God is our savior. And though Psalm 150 isn't without its reasons, the overall theme is simply praise Him. In fact, in these short uh, six short verses, the word praise appears uh, 13 times, dramatically making this emphasis. And so it's an inescapable truth, revealed as the culmination of the entire book of Psalms, that God the Lord is to be praised. Now if we were to go back to Psalm 1, we'd see God's purpose in placing that particular psalm at the head of the entire book as that psalm lays out the reality of only two possible paths in life. The way of the wicked which perishes from the face of the earth, and the way of the godly that leads to eternal life. 
And then, of course, following that psalm, there are a variety of themes addressing every possible human emotion or situation that we find in the book of Psalms. Things such as joy and gladness, grief, sorrow, pain, suffering, love and compassion, anger and hatred, anxiety, despair, comfort, hope, assurance, victory, salvation, persecution, oppression, sin, rebellion, violence, grace, mercy, forgiveness, blessings and promises, curses, judgments, creation, relationships, family, friends, enemies, God, Lord, Savior, King, and Christ. And we could certainly go on and on. But all of these hymns of praise that God has given to us, they all build up to this one thing. To this high point that shouts victory and triumph. The entire message of the book of Psalms is this. Praise and glory to our great God. Praise Him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, As we consider Psalm 150 this morning, may you see, hear, understand, believe, and heed the message, this glorious message of this psalm. Now the structure of the Psalm 150 is very simple and and straightforward as it really answers some basic questions about praise. Where, why, how, and who. And we begin with where. Where is God to be praised. And the simple answer is everywhere. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Now God's sanctuary is the, the place that His holy presence, uh, presence resides. And the parallel statement, His mighty firmament, tells us that the Lord is to be praised in His glorious heavenly throne room where He even now reigns and rules over all creation. And indeed, God is praised in the heavens. We saw this back in in Psalm 148. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. That God is praised continually by the angels and the heavenly hosts in the highest height of heaven or what the Apostle Paul referred to as the third heaven. The praise of God booms forth from the heavens. But we know that God so loved His people, Israel, that He chose to dwell in their midst. In the place that He would set apart as holy. And this, of course, was the most holy place within the sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, remember uh, the, the, uh, the glory cloud of fire of the Lord descended upon the temple, demonstrating to the people in a very visible way that He was surely among them. That He was there within His holy sanctuary. And the great blessing of this was that when the people gathered to the temple for worship, when they would come to offer their sacrifices and their praise to the Lord, they were truly praising God in His sanctuary, that is, in His presence. Of course, remember the earthly temple merely pointed forward to something better yet to come. Even the eternal Son of God 
the Word of God come in the flesh and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who would dwell among His people. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead did dwell. And through His perfect obedience to the law and His uh, complete submission to the Father's will, even to the point of the shameful and the painful death on the cross, Jesus secured for us a more perfect salvation as He presented Himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. And this salvation was secured when He rose again from the dead on the third day and then He sent His Holy Spirit not only to dwell among us, but to dwell in us. So that now, the presence of the living God is in those who believe in Christ. And so Jesus would tell the Samaritan woman in John 4, saying, The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And then later He goes on to say, For God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so no longer restricted to a particular building in a particular city. But wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ, in the assembly of His saints, wherever they may be, He is in their midst. Indeed, even right here, right now, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is with us as we praise and glorify Him. But there's still more. You see, since Jesus has broken through the veil of of separation and entered the most holy place of God's heavenly sanctuary as our great mediator, as our great high priest, well, we now have free access to do the same, even with great boldness. So that when we gather together here in this place on the earth to praise God, well, in a very real and spiritual way, through Christ's priestly mediation, we enter into the same heavenly sanctuary in the presence of God, joining the chorus of praise of the heavenly hosts. Beloved, this is worship in spirit and truth. And it will only get better and more perfect when we stand in the holy sanctuary forever, not only in spirit, but also with our resurrected glorified bodies and will be there forever and ever in all eternity. And so truly, from everywhere, praise is lifted up to the Lord. From the highest heights of heaven to the gathering of the church on earth and then back up to heaven and every place in between. Praise Him. Praise the Lord. But why? Why is the Lord to be praised? Now this may seem like an impossible question. Not because there's no answer, but really as we begin to think about it, the answers are too numerous to count. We've already considered, again, some of the chief reasons in the previous couple of Psalms as, uh, as to why we're to praise God. But here in Psalm 150, the reasons are simply summarized for us in verse 2. Praise Him For His mighty acts, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. So it's simply this. Praise God for what He's done and praise Him 
for who He is. Now what has God done? Well, He's created all things out of nothing by the Word of His power in the space of six days. And He continues to sustain all that He's created. He created man after His own image. He set the sun, moon, and stars in place to mark time and seasons. And He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He brings forth plants and crops for food. And He reveals Himself through creation and His Word. He hears and answers prayer. He saves His people from sin and the condemnation of death. He comforts and helps in time of need. He delivers and rescues from harm. He blesses the righteous and He curses the wicked. He extends grace and mercy to those who are needy. And He administers justice. Indeed, our great God and Savior has done these things. And truly, as God, through Jesus Christ, is continually working out all things for the good of His people and for His own glory, well, really, there's then no end to the mighty acts that He has done and that He continues to do and that He will forever do. Therefore, we should praise Him for His mighty acts in all that He's done. But we should also praise God for who He is. Well, who is God? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 2, paragraph 1, defines who God is. It says this, There is but one living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, Invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. Working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will. For His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And withal most just and terrible in His judgments. Hating all sin. And who will by no means clear the guilty. All this, and certainly much more, as we can't even really fully comprehend the infiniteness of God. Since we are just finite creatures. But God is certainly to be praised then for who He is, the reality of of who He is, and again, for what He has done. Well, next in Psalm 150, we come to the how of praise. And the psalmist here answers this question by listing a variety of of musical instruments, beginning in verse verse 3. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Now the first thing that we want to notice here is that not all of these instruments were used in the formal worship of the Old Testament church. In fact, in in some ways, these instruments are just telling us much about when the Lord is to be praised as they do how he is to be praised. And so, for example, the timbrel or the tambourine was not one of the instruments that the Lord through David prescribed for the formal worship of God in the temple. 
And when you find the word timbrel in the Old Testament, the passage often either includes or implies the action of dancing. And so timbrels and dancing often go together. And they were a common part of joyful celebrations. Now these celebrations had a variety of reasons. They could be special occasions in the family. Uh, even as Laban had promised that he would, uh, that he would have sent Jacob, Rachel, and, and Leah and their children away with joy and songs and timbrel and harp. Certainly a promise that was certainly worthy of great doubts. But it was a promise still that they would have been sent away with celebration. Or as we most often find the timbrel and dancing is associated with the joyful celebration of victory in battle. And so, uh, for example, Miriam and the women uh, celebrated the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of Pharaoh's army in, in Exodus 15. And then we, in the book of Judges, we have Jephthah's daughter celebrating her father's victory over the Ammonites, which, of course, ended up being a great tragedy for her and her father because of her father's foolish vow. And then there were the daughters of Israel Singing as Saul and uh, singing and dancing as Saul and his army returned from defeating the Philistines, a victory which included David's great triumph over the over Goliath. And remember, they sang, "Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands." And so, in response to the great victories that God had secured, the people celebrated with timbrels and dancing. Well, then we also have the return of the ark to Jerusalem. Though it was not a formal service of worship, it was more a civil celebration of joy and gladness that again was accompanied by timbrels and dancing. Well, the flute or the pipe that is also mentioned here was also not an instrument appointed for the formal worship of God, but was most often used to simply make joyful music in everyday life. And we have this uh, in Genesis 4.21. Uh, was actually, uh, I think it was Jubal who uh, first kind of invented the, the flute. And then uh, Job 21 speaks of uh, the flute and the pipe uh, in just uh, common everyday celebrations. Well, then we have the trumpet. <clears throat> now, the trumpet was a multi-purpose instrument. And it was used on a variety of occasions, all by the command of the Lord. And we find this in Leviticus chapter 10. And so that uh, we find all, of the, all four of these uses that God commands for the trumpet in, in Leviticus 10. By, first, by the blast of the trumpet, it was a way to call the, uh, and assemble the people at the entrance of the tabernacle, either for worship or for announcements. There were two trumpets. Uh, two trumpets were blown for the whole assembly to gather. One trumpet was blown for just the elders to gather. And then the trumpet blast was also used to signal to the people that it was now time, either time to break camp and move on, or to stop their marching and set up camp. We see that trumpets were also used to advance the army in battle as a reminder to the people that the Lord was with them and that He would deliver them. And then the fourth function of the trumpet is that they were to be, to, uh, to be blown during the time of formal worship over the burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, as the Lord commands in Leviticus 10, verse 10. 
And then the other instruments that are mentioned here, the lute, the harp, stringed instruments, and cymbals, these were all used on a variety of joyful occasions, but again, they were also, along with the trumpet, specifically used by the Levites in the formal worship of God during the offering up of the sacrifices in the temple. The use of these instruments wasn't because the Levites or David or someone else thought, hey, you know, our, our worship would be so much better if we added musical instruments. And it wasn't as, they, as if they said, you know, I really want to be able to, to use my gifts and to be able to express myself to God in praise and worship. No. All these instruments were used in the temple worship by the command of God. And we see this in Second Chronicles 29, verse 25. And we'll come back to this passage again later. But, but here we read, And he, stayed, he, that is Hezekiah the king, uh, stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And so through David and through uh, Gad and through Nathan, the Lord commanded these instruments to be used in the worship of God. And so we see here then the evidence, in this case, of the biblical doctrine of what we call the regative principle of worship, which was established in the second commandment and most clearly is defined in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, that whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, you shall not add to it nor take away from it. To the flute, the timbrel, and the dancing were not commanded by God for his formal worship. But the trumpets, the string instruments, the cymbals, and the lute and the harp, they were commanded by God. But again, as we've seen, there were a variety of other times which God's people gave him uh, praise outside these times of formal worship. And so again, for example, God can be praised with all these instruments as an expression of gratitude for some providence, whether that happens within a family or even within a nation. They can be used to praise God as an expression of the enjoyment of God's good gift of life, even just everyday life or enjoyment and entertainment. Or they can be used as a celebratory response to the Lord's granting a great victory in battle. And of course, only those instruments commanded by God could also be used in the times of praise during the formal worship in the temple. And so really the key lesson here uh, for us is that praise can and should be given to God at all times with great joy and gladness. Well, here's the burning question that we as Reformed Presbyterians are often confronted with. How can you then sing this psalm, which mentions all these instruments, how can you sing it and, and other psalms without using musical instruments? Well, the best answer when someone asks you that question is to simply respond with another question. What has God commanded us to use when we gather together as the church in the formal worship of God? What has God commanded? That's what they would have asked in the Old Testament. That's what we ask today. Now, as we've just considered, 
God hasn't commanded timbrels, dancing, or the flute. Right? So we know those are not to be used in worship. So what about the trumpets, the cymbals, the lute, the harp, and the string instruments, which we see commanded for use in the temple worship? Why don't we use those instruments in the worship of the church? Well, for that, we need to consider how and when those instruments were used in the worship of the Old Testament church. Now, we already saw in Leviticus 10 that the trumpet was specifically employed, uh, employed during the worship service when the offering up of the sacrifices and the burnt offerings were made. Right? That was Leviticus 10.10. 10. But again, going back to 2 Chronicles 29... And 2 Chronicles 29 really is the, the one passage in Scripture that gives us the clearest glimpse into what the formal worship of the temple looked like. And it's given to us in, in great detail. And so when we look at that passage, we see that the other musical instruments, along with the trumpet, were also employed only during the offering up of the sacrifices. And so here's what we read in 2 Chronicles 29, beginning at verse 27. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began, with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And we'll stop there for a minute. Until... Right? Until The word until implies something has begun, but there's going to be an end. And so all these instruments, when the sacrifice began, the singing and all the instruments began until the sacrifice was finished. Well, what happened once the sacrifice was finished? We continue reading. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. That's singing the Psalms. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Once the sacrifices were finished, the instruments stopped playing. But if you notice, the worship, including the singing, continued. And what's interesting here is that as you read through the rest of the passage, the instruments are no longer mentioned after specifically being mentioned several times earlier in the count, leading up to the offering up of the sacrifices. The sacrifice ends, the instruments are silent, but the praise of God and the worship of God continues. So the musical instruments God had commanded to be used in the formal worship of the temple were only used during the offering up of the sacrifices. No sacrifices means no instruments. Now this was the practice that was then uh, adopted in the synagogue worship, which rose to prominence especially during the captivity, uh, captivity period after the temple had been destroyed. Right? The temple was destroyed. The people no longer had a place to go and offer their sacrifices, but they continued to gather in these synagogues to worship God. But even after the temple was rebuilt, instruments were only used 
where the sacrifices occurred. And so there were no sacrifices offered in the worship of the synagogue. And so there were no instruments in the worship of the synagogue. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ came and offered himself as the perfect once for all sacrifice for our sins, well then the sacrificial system of the temple became obsolete and is no longer commanded by God. In fact, God made sure of this. And then he made sure that this would be the case when he had the Romans as his judgment upon Israel for rejecting their Messiah. The Romans came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, leaving it in a pile of rubble where it remains even today. And so since 70 AD, or just before 70 AD, until now, there have been no sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem because God had said, it is now complete and done. Or Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And so in the New Testament church, then having no need of offering sacrifices, also no longer employed the musical instruments which accompanied those sacrifices in worship. And so a cappella worship, <clears throat> that is praising God in the formal worship gatherings without the use of musical instruments, was the practice of the early church up through the first five centuries. Now over time, as various other corruptions entered the church, so, dude, uh, so too did the corruptions of worship. And it wasn't until the Reformation of the 16th century that a cappella worship, which again, the word a cappella itself means literally as in chapel or as in church. How do you sing a cappella? As they do in chapel, without instruments. And so during the Reformation, this uh, way to worship God was restored and became the predominant practice among most Protestant denominations, including Methodist, Baptist, Congregationalists, and of course, Reformed and Presbyterian churches. But then in the late 18th and early 19th century, especially under the influence of revivalists like people like Charles Finney, it led many congregations away from a cappella worship by introducing pianos and organs as a way to elicit emotional responses from the people. And so that today, a handful of denominations now stand out as oddities as we continue to adhere to what was once the commonly accepted biblical practice, that we worship God only as he has commanded And since we no longer have the command to offer sacrifices, we no longer have the command to use musical instruments. And of course now, without the guardrail of the regulative principle of worship, the abundance of musical instruments employed in many churches today has the appearance more of a concert performance than the worship of the triune God in spirit and truth. Well, this then leads to how we're to truly praise the Lord and worship. And even how we can sing this psalm in worship as an apt form of praise to God. The musical instruments mentioned here in Psalm 150, again, help the people uh, to stir them with joy and gladness in their hearts. They were an aid to the people. But since we have no command in the New Testament to use musical instruments in worship, we may wonder, well, how are our hearts to be stirred with joy and gladness. Well, they're stirred 
with something far better than lifeless instruments. It is the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us that is to stir our hearts for worship. The Holy Spirit alone is sufficient to make our hearts full with gladness as we meditate upon the great salvation that Christ has secured for us. It's the work of the Spirit that renews our hearts in regeneration and gives to us the gift of faith so that we might believe in Christ and what He's done for us. It's the Holy Spirit that's always with us, that Jesus promised would never leave us nor forsake us. It's the Spirit applying to our hearts the forgiveness of sins that Christ secured for us upon the cross and applying the sure and certain hope of the new eternal life Christ secured by His resurrection from the dead on the third day. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He comforts us and renews our strength and works in us the fruits of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The joy of the Holy Spirit is what accompanies our praise to God in worship. Indeed, the only two instruments that the Lord commands us to use in the, in the worship of God in the New Testament are found in two passages. The first one is Ephesians 5, verse 19, where Paul says, singing and making melody in, and literally the word there is, plucking the instrument of your heart to the Lord. So we use our hearts. And then Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Now note here especially the reference to offering a sacrifice. Right? But it's no longer a bloody animal accompanied by musical instruments. But it's a true, sincere sacrifice of praise defined as the fruit of our lips. Brothers and sisters, in the formal worship of God, He commands that we worship Him with Spirit-filled hearts and the Spirit-produced fruit of our lips. Even the praise and thanksgiving we offer to Him for the glorious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That is how we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, finally, we come to the who of praise. And there are two quick things that we want to mention here. First, our praise and worship is to be directed toward God alone. And this ought to be obvious and is the substance of really the first commandment that we're to have no other gods before Him. The one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the only object of our praise and worship. He alone created us. He alone sustains us. He alone has redeemed us. He alone reigns and rules over us and all creation as the sovereign Lord and King. He alone is worthy to receive our praise and our worship. But secondly, who is it that's called to do the praising? And verse 6, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath is called to praise the Lord. Now we may want to say then, all living things. But as we see in As we saw back in Psalm 148, it wasn't just the living things that were called to praise God, but really all creation, right? Even the lifeless objects like the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the mountains, they all were called to praise the Lord, and they surely do. But Psalm 150 has a different focus. Not nearly as broad as Psalm 148. 
In fact, when we consider how the term breath is used in the Old Testament, we see that it narrows all living things down to just one. Mankind. In Genesis 2 verse 7, the account of God creating all things, only mankind was given the breath of life. And whenever this term is used, whenever we see all that has breath, it speaks of people, not animals or other creatures. And so it's telling us that all humanity is being called upon here to praise the Lord. Now certainly we know to do this as the people of God because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us and through us in Christ. But even as Psalm 150 is the concluding doxology of the Psalter, even now it's, it's pointing us forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, even Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that they would be blessed through the proclamation of the gospel which Christ secured uh, as His people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would come to praise Him for their salvation in Christ. But friends, it even points ahead further still. Not just to the coming of Christ and and the, the age of the gospel. But even further still. When truly everything that has breath That is, every single human being, past, present, and future, will give the Lord the praise that is due to Him alone. The Apostle Paul tells us of this time when this will happen in Philippians 2 verse 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the praise that Psalm 150 is calling us to. So that even now in our time of formal worship, even as we uh, seek to live our lives each and every day, as we seek to live our lives for the Lord's glory, we do so all in anticipation of that last great day when Christ returns and everything that has breath will bow before Him and praise the Lord, singing hallelujah, singing praise the Lord, hallelujah, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You for Your Word and we thank You for its truth. We thank You for this reminder and truly it is a, a glorious reminder that You alone are to be praised and worshiped. And when You give us this great honor and privilege not only to do it just throughout the the week as we live our lives, as we strive to do all that we do for Your glory, but You you, uh, call us to gather together here on the Lord's Day, one day a week, that we might rest from our usual labors, that we might focus our hearts and our minds upon this great truth. 
that you are worthy to be praised and worshipped. And Father, we just thank you that even now as we, as we sing our praise to the Lord, that our, as, our, as our hearts or our spirits are lifted into the, the heavenly realms to join that chorus of the angels that continually gives you praise and glory and honor, that we have the privilege during our time of worship because of what, what Christ has done for us to join with them, to give all praise and glory and honor to your holy name. And even as we've been reminded that even as we praise You now, we look forward to that glorious time at the end of the age when Christ returns. When He will reveal Himself to be Lord of lords and King of kings and that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord and King to the praise of Your glorious name. Father, we look forward to that day because we know on that day and forevermore afterward, we will worship You and praise Your name in the perfection of holiness without end. Father, we just rejoice and give thanks as we anticipate that time, even as we experience just a small taste of it here in our time of worship together on the Lord's Day. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would be working these truths in our hearts and that You would uh, draw us all closer to Yourself in these things. And that you would truly lead us and guide us to worship you in spirit and in truth. To the praise of your glorious name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.